Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half with me, Tom. And me, Kate. And we have a special summer episode today to tie in in a sort of cross-platform branding exercise. We're tying in <laughs> with our uh, summer double issue of The New Statesman. And this is the issue that we take months to create every year. Panic about and it's on the shelves for two weeks and it's very glossy with lots in it. But then we always finish it early, don't we? We panic and then there's no reason to panic. But if we didn't panic... Bad things would happen. Yeah, bad things would happen. It's a bit like the Christmas issue. It has many pages. Many, many pages. After the two weeks, everyone everyone just forgets about it. Mm-hmm. No one speaks of it no. again. <laughs> it has to have I, special properties. I like to keep it on my desk for, for months afterwards just to, just to remind me of how much work went into it. Not in that issue, but in another issue of the magazine, possibly, you've written about Paul Simon. You went to see Paul Simon last weekend. Yes, his farewell show. Yeah, in how Hyde was Park that? As part of his Homeward Bound tour. I was really shocked when I found out that he was doing a Homeward Bound tour because the last time I looked, he was literally about 69 years old. Hmm. And now he's 76 because time moves on. And he he looks kind of strange at the moment. He's got looks, his colouring is odd. It's kind of strong and grey. He looks hmm. like a kind of ghost um, with shadows and, and sort of grey hair. Um, and uh, it was very, I've, I've never really done any of these like going along to final shows of people because mm. I think in a way it's almost less just like, so you could say you did it. Yeah. And this one was different because I had sort of a sort of, you know, family and historical tie to him through having listened to him from earliest memories and stuff. So yeah, it was very, it was emotional. I saw him in 2012 when it was an anniversary of Graceland, possibly 25 years. Yeah. Uh, Hyde Park also. And he played the entirety of Graceland. Did he do much of Graceland? Yeah, he did Boy in the Bubble, Graceland, uh, a couple of others. He did loads of Rhythm of the Saints. He had, um, he paced his energy really well. So he, when he started singing, his voice was very wobbly and distant. Mm. And I thought, ah, this is really why it's a farewell tour. And he had a kind of chamber orchestra around him, this New York group called Y Music. So it was literally cellos and violins and woodwind and stuff but then it sort of swelled out into the 1986 big brass band with the african Mm. musicians and stuff and his voice got stronger and stronger throughout it as well so that kind of he was just like saving himself i think and then at the end he did this incredible two or three song acoustic set where he did american tune which is obviously his anti-vietnam song and it just resonated with trumpness because it was the day that trump was leaving his Scottish golf courses, and he didn't need to say anything at all. To head off to meet Putin. To meet Putin, this this idea of a, a kind of battered nation with a headache, unable to sleep, and having bad dreams and stuff. It was, mm. just, it was just incredible. It felt like everybody was there, and then you know the the streets were thick with people afterwards, and you couldn't get into any of the tubes. And he timed Bridge Over Troubled Water to hit the exact moment the sun went over the mm. horizon. And I was thinking about, um, I wrote about this a bit, but, you know, how much do these farewell gigs actually mean to the artist? Can they really conjure up a sort of relationship with the country 
in their minds when they're performing when they're never going to see that stage again and mm. stuff like that or is it just you know a job he's got a bit of a connection with the uk hasn't he i'm, I'm pretty sure that they did um some of the graceland recording in in the uk also didn't he come here in the 60s and do loads of folk clubs and yes, things like that yeah. he had some early sort of inspiration yeah from, which is weird when you think of the greenwich village folk clubs that he actually found something in ours but um but yeah we will not see his like again his catalogue is kind of amazing actually isn't it when you the, the breadth of it because you think of graceland as a sort of discrete entity mm. but at either end of that, there's so much more. Yeah, and then in like, when he was 72, he did this thing called Rewrite, which was a... Uh, he's one of the only people who can get away with being a grumpy old man without it making him sound old. Yeah. And and he sort of talks about um, a rewrite on his own life, and there's some poignant line about, I'd like to substitute the the bit where the father has a breakdown with a car chase. Kind of <laughs> so he's just looking back over himself and sort of trying to make it better. And then there's a whole song which he did. The, the nice thing is it was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a Greatest Hits tour, but a uh, Greatest Hits show, but actually it wasn't at all because he played this song called Wristband, which is literally just about how annoying it is to be asked for a wristband when you're going backstage. And it's like, that really is the most grumpy thing ever written. And he's like, yeah, here's one of my hits. It's like, no, that was not a hit. Do you think he'll stick to it then? This, he sort of, yeah, he kind of has to, doesn't he? I mean, when people announce their, I'm always suspicious when novelists say, this is my last novel or musicians say, this is my last yeah. gig or whatever. I'm always a little bit suspicious. I guess but... that he he won't, he do, certainly won't retire as a musician, yeah. but he doesn't have to do these massive grueling. Tours, yeah. He's been touring for 50 years. I yeah. mean, uh, it's a bit, it's unlike Elton John, who obviously earlier this year announced his retirement course, in yeah. three years time. So he's doing three years of gigs before he retires, by which time his children are going to be teenagers because he wants to spend more time with his children. <laughs> so wait till they're at secondary school. Dickens died halfway through his farewell tour. Oh, <gasps> did he? Yeah. How far did he get? Um, he died. I don't know. He 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 had. I mean, he basically had the equivalent of an arena tour booked, doing readings from. I think maybe I mentioned that. I, I have to be careful about re re rolling <laughs> rolling. Out I think anecdotes. we use a lot of I've our only material. Got six anecdotes. <laughs> I've only got six anecdotes, and this is my Dickens one. And even then, I haven't got the details right. Um, when we talked about Christmas Carol in January, just after Christmas. Yes, he did. He he had a big farewell tour, but he knew he was ill. But he didn't. He didn't make it all the way. He had to. The last few gigs, mm. at, a la Michael Jackson, were yeah. The, the the plug was pulled. Sadly. Sadly. What else are we going to be talking about? In we this are going to be talking about um, well, two special properties of mm -hmm. the of the summer issue. Yeah. A, a very interesting feature that you have brought together about collections. Mm -hmm. famous people and famous writers and their surprising collections. And uh, the other thing we're going to speak of is that I... Speak whereof, whereof we speak. I interviewed the League of Gentlemen, um, who are just about to embark on their own, not farewell tour, but maybe farewell tour, um, an arena tour around the UK. And um, I demanded that I interview them all separately, which I felt a bit bad about because they had to come down one by one <laughs> to down. my room <laughs> and sit on a plastic chair. But there's nothing worse than interviewing. Was a group one of waiting people. outside as the as the first one went? Pretty much, came and out. they also said, "What order do you want us in?" <laughs> and I was like, "I don't mind. That's like I'm literally not going to stipulate what order I get you in." But there's nothing worse than interviewing. It's like interviewing a band in a group. It's just awful. It's it's basically just too pressurizing for the interviewer and they all show off in front of each other. So we avoided that. Okay, all of that coming up. So Kate, you were just saying that you imperiously demanded that each of the four members of 
the League of Gentlemen come to your office for your <laughs> 10 minute GP surgery individually. There are only three on screen, aren't they? So mm. ha- what's the dynamic? Who who does what? Jeremy Dyson is the, the fourth member, mm. the non-acting member who met Mark Gatiss at, Gatiss was in the second year of Bretton Hall Drama College at that point. And they were introduced by a mutual friend. They were both resistant to the idea of being introduced because the mutual friend had said, you've got to meet this guy. He's just like you. And there's nothing more annoying yeah. than that. Um, but I'm unique. But I'm unique. And uh, and they they bonded over the fact that they both, within five minutes, were recalling a a lost John Inman sitcom from the late 70s that ran for one season on Sunday night and neither of them could remember the name of it and they thought, okay, I get it. We are we are exactly the same. <laughs> and Steve Pemberton and Rhys Shearsmith were also at Bretton Hall. And the interesting thing about the way they work is that they work in those pairs. Those are the friendships they were explaining. So Gatiss and, and Dyson Wright and Pemberton and Shearsmith Wright and obviously they produced Inside Number 9 which is uh, people are increasingly saying this is the best show on television, which mm. is lovely because it's one of those sleeper things. Mm. I don't even think it was on. It was some weird, weird channel, wasn't it, at first? And then now it's kind of gradually creeping into people's consciousness. Mm. So they all met. How did League of Gentlemen come? I mean, w- w- tell us a bit about the setting and, and, they and how of, it originated. They bonded through shared experiences of what their parents said about their choice of drama as a career. Right. So they were all from working class backgrounds. Gaysa's parents were of a mining family. His Mm. dad was the first of the family not to go underground, but to be a mining engineer. Um, And he's from Sedgefield, uh, Durham, Tony Blair's old constituency. The other two are from Blackburn and Hull. Jeremy Dyson was in Leeds, I think. So they had this sense of uh, the fact they came from backgrounds that were not Radio 4 backgrounds. They weren't arts-based. They never went to the theatre. Mm. And they just they found... They weren't footlights. They basically. weren't footlights. Yeah. So they just found it amusing that, that their parents would say, you know, they were going to spend their whole lives on the dole. And of course, they were on the dole for many years because yeah. it took them about eight years to get it together. But they got Pauline, the restart officer, out of the dole experiences. Mm. And they got the Legs Akimbo theatre company out of the out of the unemployed periods as well. So it's just a classic tale, really, of doing things another way. I mean, I, I think when they won the Perrier Award in 97, they were the first sketch show to have won it since the Footlights. And they used to wear these ironic tuxedos because people thought that they must be Footlights. And Gatiss was saying that, you know, it literally was that you'd go, people thought they'd gone to Royston Vasey, their their fictional Yorkshire town, as kind of on a field trip almost to see how these weird northern people live, when of course they were northern themselves. So I'm sure most of our listeners will probably be familiar with this show, but for those that aren't, Royston Vasey is the the setting. This is this fictional fictional northern town. And it's sort of sketches within all within that world. Yeah, it's a weird kind of um, dystopian town full of, it was, it was first broadcast in 98, I think, um, a dystopian town full of circus freaks and people who eat human flesh in a local butchers and people trapped in terrible managers, uh, marriages and, you know, nasty domestic situations versus um, impoverishment and dead end jobs and all that kind of thing. But it always had this kind of grand guignol element to it where it was, it was very over the top. And I was working in budgeons at the time on my gap year in rural Norfolk and I just remember seeing the trailers for it in September uh, 1998 and just thinking this is my show I'm going to watch this from the start without my parents Mm -hmm. I'm still living at home this is not something I've inherited from them this isn't like watching Blackadder and I'm going to watch this and this is mine Um, because it's something about the the 
the idea of the kind of the, the colourful horror that you can find in sort of wet, dead-end life and rural small-mindedness was was sort of what inspired them. And also they looked at their the areas that they'd grown up in and Steve Pemberton was saying to me, was like, we pictured those desolate parks where you used to go and play and you'd always find a damp porn magazine in a concrete tunnel and a concrete tunnel was something to play in and it always stank of piss. And if you've grown up anywhere like that, which mm. I mean, Norfolk is not like that at all, but, you know, hours and hours and hours completely on your own in the countryside with just your your mind and your VHSs of strange horror films mm. and versus Indiana Jones and James Bond. I mean, that's how that was what produced this, really. This was uh, four guys from relatively normal working class backgrounds who just watch TV all the time. Mm. They're working from a sort of very English template of slightly kind of gentler... Uh, comedy like Alan Bennett and and Victoria Wood and just giving it a I mean I know Victoria Wood isn't isn't always gentle or at least there's there's often a bite underneath it the gentle veneer but um they're taking that and then giving it a kind of darker darker twist yeah the, the reason I wanted to do this was that they of course came back at Christmas with this mm. kind of three-part special which I remember when people heard about that it was like oh is this actually going to work has it been too long and it was incredibly successful because they went back to Hadfield in Derbyshire, which is the town that, that Royston Vasey became, um, this sort of the fictional, the one that they based it on. And they found it had been gentrified because of the urban regeneration in Manchester. It's about 12 miles from Manchester. And they had to spend money to make the town look crap again. Yeah. So all this stuff had changed, but they took at the heart of the show, obviously there's this very obscure um, joke about two people who run a local shop who don't want anybody in it. Mm. And the slogan is, it came out of the year of catchphrase TV in the 90s. So it was, you know, this is a local shop for local people. There's nothing for you here. Hello, hello, what's all this shouting? There's nothing for you here. And of course, this just played perfectly into the post-Brexit Britain that they found themselves in when they were rewriting this. So they, there's a lot of political twists in the in the the version that came back at Christmas. But there's also something about the dialogue that was sharper as well. And I actually wrote some of it down. So I was watching the um, uh, the restart officer Pauline in the job centre, and she comes in and she's sitting in front of all these tired men who are sort of you know unemployed, and she complains of the smell, and she says. Smell that, job seekers. This is the smell of idleness. Dirty little bum cracks pumping out gas from a quick-save, no-frills pasty. Eating cold at four in the morning because time has no meaning for you. That is your smell, job seekers. And I am an aerosol. <laughs> and it was just when you saw it written on the page and how crunchy and condensed yeah. and dark and, and Victoria Wood-esque it was, yeah. I thought, this writing has actually translated into the present day. This isn't out of date anymore. Mm. Had her character or any of the others become nastier or sharper, do you think, in the in the recent I think there iteration. was there was a hell of a lot of darkness to it because she in the in the recent one was actually suffering from major dementia and the setting of her in the job center was part of something called um I think a kind of regression therapy that was being done by the National Health Service to try and remind her who she was. So at every turn they put something horrible <laughs> An in extra it. Layer. There's a character whose wife has got really fat um and uh he asks his friend to kill her in a mercy killing. You know, there's, it's really, really nasty mm. stuff. There's uh, Tubbs and Edward cut two reporters' faces off at the end of mm. it. So they on, they're on no account had they held anything back. And they also, what I loved is that they they had taken their um, transvestite character, as I think she was, Barbara, the taxi driver, um, who was seen going in for an op. So she was like pre, um, pre-op pre transsexual by the end of the 
the original series, they'd taken her and they, <laughs> they kind of ignored all the political incorrectness around it. And it opens with her saying that her cab is a safe space. And, you know, we're not we're not just laughing matter for the likes of you anymore. And she's um, she's she shuns the acronym LGBT, but she's invented her own, which is which spells out acronym, which is actively reconsidering gender reassignment or not yet major mind up. <laughs> and Gatiss was saying, like, the, I do think these acronyms are, are ridiculous. They are absurd. Yeah. And we're not going to stop making jokes about this. They're very brave to to um, to address yeah. trans issues, aren't they, on, on the show? I was thinking about why, because we're in an era in which people take offence perhaps easier than they did 20 years ago, I was thinking about why their characters are not offensive. And I think it's, it, is it possibly just because they are so well-written and they're so odd that they're not like, oh, this character is a straightforward two-dimensional version of a trans person mm. or this character stands in for um, an older person living in a r- rural setting. Yeah. Like they're just, they're kind of... They're too they're too awkward to be to be kind of straightforward representations of different social groups. Yeah, Pemberton said in '97 that we we wanted to subvert the traditional sketch show, which as it na- as its name suggests is not very well filled in. Mm. That was a quote from him, and he said we wanted to make our characters lovable, yeah. and better written. And yeah. with Barbara, for instance, I mean Shearsmith was saying to me that you know she was a very lovable, sweet natured person. And this was true, like right from the start, she was the one that the the new arrivals to Royston Baby basically could really chat to in the back of the cab, and she she's kind of come out of it better than anybody else in a sense because she was right all along about the way she chose to live her life and now the world's caught up with her so there there is that sort of sense of the um the poignancy to them and um Shearsmith was saying that he finds Ollie Plimpsoles the most poignant character to play who's who's now ended up as a drama teacher when he had dreams of you know really being a a proper theatre writer Mm. and he's written um he's still writing educational plays including Slip Face, which is about burkers, and Suck It and See, which is about revenge porn. And it's like, how do they get away with this? But they did. They do get away with it. They mentioned to you in your in your piece um, about how that local shop for local people, sort of, they kept seeing it crop up in sort of political cartoons and things. And it is interesting how, I mean, now we're obsessed with this, you know, and it gets quoted endlessly, this book written by... David Goodhart, which divides everyone into anywheres and somewheres, as in the people who are very rooted to their locality, um, who are the kind of supposedly the leave voting population and the people who are a bit more affluent and very comfortable living anywhere and feel more like citizens of the world. Mm. Um, And um, it's interesting how uh, Lee kind of tapped into that idea of the somewheres um, very early on, before it became a thing with a capital T. Yeah, because the 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 owners of the local shop are extremely posh, like really, really posh kind of RP accents and noses stuck in the air. And there are all sorts of accents mixing in. Yeah. In Royston Vasey, there's there are Durham accents, Welsh ones. There's yeah. a kind of bizarre Spanish guy who sounds like Manuel of Faulty Towers. Yeah. And they, I don't think that their relationship with the idea of being Northern was straightforward at mm. all. I mean, Dyson told me that they couldn't stand um, Northern comedy, which put it on for the sake of it but that they themselves were informed by Alan Bennett and Victorian Wood and Les Dawson. So they were actually looking at the North-South divide 
and looking at what was wrong at Northern Attitudes with Northern Attitudes as well as what was great about the North. So yeah, that's that sense of kind of of difference and small-mindedness was at the heart of it rather than sort of saying we are better than you. I know you interviewed them separately, but did you get the sense that um, they still sort of get on, they still mesh? Because um, Gatiss, they've all gone on to do different things, haven't they? And, and Gatiss in particular has become, a, I mean, he's a real star, isn't he? I mean, he must be so... Sherlock he's so highly in demand, both Doctor as a writer Who. and an actor. Yeah, I mean, you can't really tell with those things, can you? Because they, it was funny watching them rehearse mm. in inverted commas because they were literally just standing around a MacBook Air <laughs> in in the the deserted bar of the Union Chapel okay. listening to. Them. And I would love to have been a fly on the wall and actually seen how they get on. It was interesting that they it makes all... me sorry to interrupt you, but there is one fantastic episode of Inside Number Nine with two two comedians <laughs> yeah. when they come to rehearse. And that's when you said you were going to watch them rehearse, that for some reason was what was what was in my head. It's like in a in a hall uh, adjacent to a church, isn't it? It's in a church hall and they've Perfect. got they've got their kind of bags full of costumes and things. <laughs> that's exactly you kind of expect to yeah. see wigs and yeah, crazy no, fake breasts. Yeah, just a MacBook. Yeah. But I think they were literally writing yeah. it. I mean, yeah, I don't get any sense of how um how it works apart from that they did all stress that there are these two friendship groups within it and that that's how the writing still gets done now. Yeah. Um, and they they all said that it was kind of effortless to come back to it, but there was something about, I kind of, maybe I'm just reading this into it, but I imagine that Gatus has got so much else to do and to be getting on with that this is kind of a, this he described it as like playing right. and no one interferes. Yeah. So he's come back to his his earliest writing life and he's doing a bit more of this and then he'll probably carry on doing his other things. I guess however highly esteemed you are working on things like um, Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Who comes with so much baggage that going back to something that you created yeah. must must actually be a lot of fun. So they're doing a sort of arena tour. Yeah, it starts right? on August the 6th right. um, up north and I think it goes all over the country and they're presumably quite big venues, but I don't know much about what's going to be on stage because mm. it was all under wraps. So they were writing new material, but obviously you know that you're going to go and get Tubbs and Edward and that lot when you see it. Uh, Kate's piece is in the aforementioned summer double issue of The New Statesman. So, Tom, you had uh, an idea for the Summer Double, which was to ask people about their collections or their scrapbooks or their personal kind of interests early in life. I did have an idea, Kate, and that's something that happens approximately once a week, once every two or three months. Um, And this came from uh, a tweet. Um, I had a scrapbook when I was a kid and I'd found it recently going through some stuff at my parents' house. And it was very like, it's one of those sort of Proustian Madeline type objects that I've actually got very patchy memory of my entire childhood. <gasps> Dark. Not, not, through any, <laughs> not through any trauma, but just through having a crap memory. That's why I'll never be a novelist because I don't have total recall of, <laughs> of some important exchange with a primary school teacher. Nor can I, like my wife, remember the first and surname of every single person in her primary school class. <laughs> This scrapbook was uh, was a really resonant object to me, and I was uh, looking to get one for my my daughter. I mean, the stuff I put in my scrapbook, I just it was weird. Actually, it was kind of it was stuff cut out from magazines, but it was like a lot of it was ads cut out from mm. magazines. What kind of, of ads? Like eighties advertising for like Alka Seltzer, <laughs> and but like that would have like little cartoon animals as like mascots in it or something. Um, like people water skiing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Was, How old were you when you made this? Um, 
I th- maybe like f- five. Wow. Five, five. You still got it. Yeah, still got yeah. it. Yeah. It's a it's a red one and it's sylvine. I don't know if anyone can picture that. It's a, a brand of stationery and it's got a very nice little crest on the front. Um, anyway, I was looking for uh, something like that for my daughter because she likes cutting things out. I thought she'd be good for her to have a scrapbook. And just the first, I was in a post office and I saw exactly the same scrapbook as I had, the same size, same shape, everything. So I was really delighted with this. So I I bought it, obviously, and took a picture of it and tweeted it and said, you know, it's lovely to find your old scrapbook and and, um, give it to your kid. And um, loads of people chipped in saying, I had one of those. (laughs) Um, I used to, I used to collect this X, Y, and Z. I used to, um, Suzanne Moore said, you know, I, I, I had a scrapbook where I just recorded everything about the moon landings. I was completely obsessed. <laughs> and so that was uh, what made me think that this might make a nice feature. But we expanded it. So it was it started as a scrapbook idea, but after that it became just um, anything that you uh, collected. And it was interesting how basically everyone who I asked said, well, I'm not really a collector, but... And then <laughs> and proceeded to, to talk about some strange and kind of mon- strange ones, m- obsessive right? collection that they that they put together. Uh, they're mainly childhood, obviously, although uh, although some of them have uh, have gone into adult life. But I think it's something that most people have tried at some point in their life. Did you did you collect anything? I only had um, scrapbooks with pictures of Ray Fiennes in. Right. And then Roger Taylor. So, yeah, they were just man's well, scrapbooks. <laughs> but that's, I mean, it's kind of, it, so it's linked with what we'd now call fandom. You yeah. Know, like, so I think that's, that. I think that counts. You know? I, I had these two pictures of Ray Fiennes that I used to, that I laminated and carried around in the <laughs> pocket of my um, school skirt. And one was from, taken from the programme of an RSC production, um, which I just, I don't know where I'd got. I think I'd sent off for it from his manager or something like that. And yeah, they, they fitted into my pocket quite well, unless I had to put anything else in my pocket, in which case they were kind of busting out. But yeah, I think they, um because you, you got some very sort of surprising submissions, didn't you? I mean, David Shrigley's interested me. Uh, David Shrigley um, collects rulers or or did collect rulers. Um, I thought David Shrigley might collect something. And um, I weirdly wasn't surprised when he said rulers. But um, this all happen I think this happens quite often when he started to get some interest in in his work and he was starting to become more widely known um journalists would come and interview him and for some reason a couple of them asked him did he collect anything and sort of on on a whim he said rulers he's got quite a dry sense of humor so I I think (laughs) I could I can imagine him sort of being quietly amused at that um, I think he did like rulers. You know, he secretly he just it. got three or something. Yeah, no, he he wasn't. He emphatically was not collecting <laughs> rulers. Um, but then this somehow became known, and whenever people came to visit him, they would bring him a ruler, <laughs> um, which I think he enjoyed for a bit. And he had some nice. He, he was telling me about this this artist that he met in Australia who um, had made him a uh, a ruler, a cast ceramic ruler. 31 centimeter ruler um which he he was really delighted with and a neighbor whose whose father he'd known and the father died and and the neighbor gave uh david shrigley um their father's uh collection of engineering rulers which he said are really beautiful but then basically he was doing a show in germany um and it was sponsored by some big multinational corporation and they said well david you know we congratulations on the show 
Um, we heard you liked rulers. Um, so we've asked everyone in all of our branches uh, to send you a ruler. Oh, God. And they pulled out this giant box. Um, and there were about 400 rulers in there but what and and each of the employees had sort of written a message on the ruler like good luck with the show David and uh, but he said what made it sort of worse was that it turns out that most people in this company use the same it was 400 nearly identical I think mad that is completely mad so no uh, one stood in and thought, shall we bother actually yeah. going and this he far? He said that, you know, they must have sort of, because these came from all over the world, they must have been FedExed over at great expense. <laughs> um, so he did take it home. But at that point, he said he thought, this is it for the ruler collection. Yeah. You know, I'm going to I'm going to knock it on the head. Until now. now when he's written about it. Well, now he's written about it. But he ends by saying that um, uh, now uh, he's going to let it be known that he collects scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Anything he actually wants to amass, yeah. say he collects it and then he'll get it. But free. I had a friend who I lived with at uh, um, university who somehow it had became known that she really liked cows. And just for any birthday or present, she would get a sort of novelty cow-based item. Did she get annoyed? <laughs> I think it became quite wearing after a while. I think, again, there was some truth in it. She did quite like cows, but at no point did she say, from now on, I only wish to receive objects in the shape of, uh, or in the colour scheme of a cow. <laughs> but the it's more lack of imagination, yeah. isn't it? Really? Yeah. But yes. Yeah, so David Shrigley and and lots of other people contributed to this feature, and now you're going to hear a couple of those people in their own words tell you about their collections. We have the novelist Howard Jacobson talking about the Ministry of Public Buildings and Works leaflets that he collected as a teenager. We've got the historian Tom Holland talking about his hoard of Anglo-Saxon coins. And first you're going to hear the novelist Audrey Niffenegger, author of The Time Traveller's Wife and, and many other books, including some rather brilliant graphic novels, talking about how her life was changed by a close encounter with a taxidermied toad. I grew up in a house full of collections. In 1977, when I was 14, my great-aunt Dulcie died and my family inherited all her worldly goods. Since she had furnished her house in the 1930s and hardly ever got rid of a thing, we suddenly had a house full of odd things. I don't think she was a collector. She was simply someone who saved things in case they might come in handy. We had been antique shop junkies and thrifters before then, but Dulcie's stuff tipped us over some rational boundary, and we began to think of ourselves as collectors and of our possessions as collections. My dad once joked that any three things in our house could be a collection, and we all reacted with horror, because we knew if we bought into that notion, there would be no stopping us ever. When I was in art school, I happened to buy a taxidermied toad at a garage sale. It cost 25 cents, and it was a bit broken. There were wires poking out where its hands should have been. It was overstuffed and clumsily sewn. I felt sorry for it, bought it, and took it home. A few years later, I bought a more elaborate piece of taxidermy, a mongoose with a cobra wrapped around its middle. The mongoose is biting the cobra, and the cobra is squeezing the mongoose, but since they are both dead, the joke is on both of them, alas. I later discovered that this particular tableau is a taxidermist's cliché, but when I was 23, it just seemed like black humor. I put it on a shelf above my bed, 
though my boyfriend found it an anti-aphrodisiac. The third piece of taxidermy, the one that doomed me, was a squirrel. It is an ordinary gray squirrel perched on a branch. It looks alarmed, but that is the normal expression of squirrels in cities. I once played a joke using this squirrel. My boyfriend liked to feed squirrels and had developed a cult following of squirrels who would wait around his door in hopes of a few almonds or cashews. He was beginning to worry that he'd over-encouraged them. One afternoon, I arrived at his house with my stuffed squirrel. I placed it on the driver's seat of his car and got on with the rest of the day, not mentioning this to my boyfriend. I heard no more of the matter for a week. Then, he presented me with a photograph of my squirrel among all the live squirrels, all in the same pose, with the same expression, surrounded by nuts. You nearly gave me a heart attack, he told me. Once there were three taxidermied animals in my apartment, my family understood this as a come-hither, and more taxidermy began to arrive on Christmas and birthdays without any further effort on my part. Now our home is a sort of sad taxidermy refuge. I collect taxidermy that is unloved, missing bits, badly mounted, or just forlorn. I recently tried to put a stop to the accumulation, but I can feel the spirits of all the unacquired taxidermy standing anxiously at our front gate, wondering why they haven't been allowed to come in. I imagine my resolve will not last long. I'm Tom Holland, a historian, and um, I am going to open a package for you live um, because I know what's in this package. Um, a bit like uh, an addict being sent his fix. Um, I have been sent a, a coin by my dealer, um, a wonderful man called, uh, fittingly enough, John Mann, um, who is just the non-pari among uh, people dealing in Anglo-Saxon coins, which is my particular obsession. It's become my particular obsession. In large part, it has to be said because uh, John feeds my habit. And he has sent me uh, an amazing prize. I promised myself that um, I wasn't going to spend money that I haven't got. But this is it's just too good to miss out on because what I have here, and I open it up, bring it out very, very carefully because these coins are very delicate. And even though it's been wrapped up very carefully, I don't want to damage it. It's just this a very, very delicate um, kind of thin piece of silver. And what it shows is um, it's a coin of Alfred the Great. And on one side, there is a portrait of Alfred, um, complete with his, his name, Alfred, and his title, Rex, King. And then on the other side, there is um, a monogram which includes letters from London. So it's a, a coin minted by Alfred in London, probably um, around uh, 980. Um, so very, very early in the process by which uh, Wessex, the kingdom ruled by Alfred, um, was fused with Mercia, the kingdom to the north. Um, and London was traditionally a Mercian city. So the fact that Alfred is minting this coin in London is indicative of the fact that he is laying claim to the rule of Mercia, a kingdom which had been 
conquered by the Vikings. Um, by terms of a, a peace treaty, Alfred has divided it in two and he's taken one half of it. But he's laying claim to, to London, ancient Roman capital, long in ruins, been occupied by the Vikings. And what Alfred is doing with this coin is not just kind of laying claim to London itself, but he's laying claim to the idea of something incredibly important and momentous. He's laying claim to the idea that he, a Saxon, he's the King of Wessex, the West Saxons, is laying claim to the Anglian kingdom of Mercia. And so he's laying claim to an identity that is Anglo-Saxon. So what we have in this coin is a visual record of something that is unspeakably momentous because essentially what we see here is kind of one of the birth certificates of England. And to touch it, to hold it, to own it is an incredible rush. Um, and it's very, very beautiful apart from anything else, but it's, it's beauty, at least in part, is because... It's such an astonishing thing, actually, to own. So there, I've got it. Um, I'm now going to open up my treasure trove of other preciouses. I feel like Gollum, only with a whole collection of rings. I'm going to put it in there, push it back, put it in the coin case, lock it up, and feel a very happy bunny. Howard Jacobson, Collecting. I was too half-hearted a child ever to be a real collector. I'd trade a cigarette packet for an autograph, and the autograph for a stamp, and the stamp for a marble, and then lose the marble. Only when it got competitive, as when I tried to build up a bigger list of books than my friend Gabriel, titles of books we'd read, then titles of books we owned, then titles of books we'd seen in bookshop windows, and finally, bizarrely, titles of books we'd simply heard of, did I feel anything of what I supposed a collector was meant to feel? But then an auntie took me on a coach trip to Furness Abbey, followed by a train trip to Knaresborough Castle. And there at last, among the mossy stones and echoes of sieges and devotion, I discovered the true avidity to acquire. Not the ruins themselves, obviously, though I wouldn't have minded having what was left of Bolton Abbey in the back garden but the descriptive leaflets published by the Ministry of Public Buildings and Works, available free or for a few pennies at the entrances to the sites. Their sober informativeness, in contrast to the picturesque ruination they chronicled, spoke at one and the same time to the romantic and the civil servant in me. I didn't mention my new enthusiasm for leaflets to Gabriel. They were too suggestive of windswept loneliness to share and I liked the idea that not another boy on the planet was collecting them. Eventually, I grew dissatisfied with the pace at which my collection was growing. There were only so many day trips we could afford to take, and hit upon the ruse of sending stamped addressed envelopes to the Ministry of Public Buildings and Works, begging information on this or that pile of rubble for a school essay I was writing. A braver boy would have taken himself off to Tinton Abbey and Kirkham Priory, but it suited me to stay home and stare at the letterbox. Did I ever own them all? I suspect I came close. 
I arranged them alphabetically in box files and would choose one randomly to read at night. For a while, I was expert in the architecture of keeps and wells and cloisters. I gave up when I discovered that Gabriel had been secretly doing the same. He did have them all. I burnt mine in the garden. Not since the dissolution of the monasteries had there been such a conflagration. So, Kate, as Love Island enters its final phase, mm. you've picked a particularly apt non-anniversary, haven't you? My own Love Island. Um, <laughs> 19 years ago, next week, 1999, Chris Tarrant's short-lived ITV show Man O' oh Man came to an end. When I looked back to research Man O' oh Man about 10 minutes ago, <laughs> I didn't want to know too much about the concept behind it because in my mind there wasn't one. Yeah. So it was a swimming pool with some men arranged in front of it, all sorts of different shapes and sizes of men, relatively youngish, maybe under 30, um, looking as men did in the late 1990s. The audience was entirely full of women. They had keypads and they voted for who they would like to push into the swimming pool and who they would like to keep standing up on dry land. And the swimming pool pushers um, were done courtesy of a load of kind of supermodels, um, Miss World types in lovely um, dresses, or sometimes I feel like I remember them being in swimming costumes. And this music would play, which um, when I returned to it on YouTube, was not the music I remember, kind of tiki music would play. And basically all the women in the audience would clap along in time to the music. And then the women would walk along and they would go up and down the line of men and then push one into the pool and then give another one a kiss. And everyone would be like happy because that guy didn't get pushed into the water. And this yeah, this ran for two seasons and people liked it. If you, were, if you if this was a pitch and you were, you were pitching it's that to me as a TV studio exec, I, I would say that's on the flimsy side. For, yeah, as it's a been concept. compared to a kind of an early take me out, but I think even that's uh, stretching <laughs> it. Um, there was kind of wailing live sax music on the on the clip I just watched now, and I think the men a weird would Aztec background Aztec, as well. Aztec, yes, always, always like um, like going into the set, yeah. yeah into the um, rainforest cafe and all the, the zone in the crystal maze, all the crystal yeah, maze, yeah. exactly. Loads of fiberglass yeah. everywhere, um, and I think that the men were required to do something to show their prowess in different areas like sometimes they would do that thing where they have to like tweak their pecs and they move up and down to the music yeah like they take their shirts off and then their tits dance up and down and then another one there there was a man who had to do a bit of river dance standing next to two real irish dancers but yeah that was it and i have no other information about it. <laughs> but i would look it up on youtube if i were you man oh man it looks like a weird sort of performance um piece of performance art i mean i can imagine that playing on loop in in a gallery some on a loop in a gallery somewhere yeah the men look i mean everyone looks very 90s obviously it is the 90s but the men particularly they're always they're all wearing those are they called granddad shirts? Yeah. Like with collarless shirts with like full buttons down there. And they've got sort of slightly lank hair in curtains. L- lank, lank curtains. And it's very unreconstructed. I mean, Tarrant's intro on the bit I just watched now, he says, frankly, anything in trousers is at risk with this Amazon audience. <laughs> and the Amazon audience is like the housewives clapping along. And let's say it's a very different. Uh, sort of ideal of beauty to Love Island. It is, which makes me sad because I, I thought late nineties beauty was great. Yeah, they're allowed to have like missing teeth and yeah, <laughs> purer than Love Island. Yeah, purer than man Love oh man. Happy nineteenth anniversary death day next week. 
Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. We will be back with you in three weeks rather than the usual two weeks. Where are we going to be, Tom? We're going to be on an island composed of plastic debris <laughs> um, to, <laughs> to celebrate the, uh, the horrendous problems with uh, plastic pollution. <laughs> so depressing. Right. I'm going to be in a treehouse in Austria. Are you? It has all the mod cons and two bedrooms, yeah. Which are the mod cons? Um, a DVD player and a toilet. Nice. It's got those. Um, Where will you be? I'm going to be somewhere in the, in the wilds of the west of Ireland. But we will be back with you in, in three weeks. In the meantime, please rate us on iTunes. Listen to our back catalogue. Um, listen to the other New Statesman podcasts. And most importantly, buy the summer double issue of the New Statesman, where you can read Kate's interview with League of Gentlemen, all our brilliant writers on their collections. What else have we got in our in our summer double issue? Big roundup of good films, good TVs, and uh, a surprising Q&A on the back page. Mm. So in the meantime, we will leave you... With the scrote-stabbing tones of Godspeed by the wonderful Japanese band Pistol Jazz. <laughs>